The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Well, I already warned someone before the service that we were going to be a little deep this evening. Not deep theologically, but deep vocally. Uh, deeper than normal. Uh, sorry for the raspy voice. I caught the bug going around this week. On the men's, doing better, but if you notice the kind of isolated quarantine myself up here, don't be offended if I didn't come by and shake your hand. You can actually thank me for not sharing any germs tonight, but that's the reason I've, I've tried to keep my distance, but do want to open up the Word of God with you this evening in Isaiah chapter 61, and not, not a deep message this evening, really a, a very, very simple message this evening. And don't confuse simplicity with being unimportant. It's actually way more important of a message than we looked at in the complexity of last week, trying to figure out where is this restored Zion pointing us to. Uh, maybe since we got bogged down a little bit, trying to understand all the differing interpretations there. But tonight, tonight is clear. Tonight is clearly pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 61 is a, a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, the first nine verses spoken about the servant of the Lord. Uh, the servant of the Lord, a messianic title, the title of the, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, maybe you've had the radio on to K-Love or to... Um, Joy FM, uh, contemporary Christian radio, and you've heard a song that they're playing over and over. It's a, a good song by uh, the band Cain. Now, I, I first heard of this band and was thinking, goodness, why are you named after Cain and Abel? That's not a good name. And I was glad to find out in one way, it's actually their last name. It's three siblings, and that is their last name, and that's what they were uh, originally called by. And and they've made it uh, pretty famous here lately in the last few years. But the song is called, I'm So Blessed. And it's got a little catchy tune. I'm so blessed, I'm so blessed, hallelujah, I'm blessed. But the bridge of the song says, Because on my best days I'm a child of God, and on my worst days I'm a child of God. Every day is a good day when you're the reason why. On our best days, because of Christ, because of what we're about to read, the Messiah, the work of the Messiah... There is a blessing of God through Christ that is ours that nothing in this life can touch. That no sorrow of this life can take away. That no, no victory of Satan in our life can rob us of. No, no power on earth can undo that which the Messiah has done and that which he has accomplished and that which he will accomplish for his people. Isaiah 61 is such a beautiful passage to lead us to this understanding of just how blessed we are and the goodness of God poured out for us through Jesus and what He has done for us and what He is doing for us and what He will one day do for us. I want to walk through the passage. I want to read through it, and then I just want to simply walk back through it. Not a very profound outline this evening, just taken straight from the verse, just really looking at a, a walk through of this passage. And help us to consider, help us to think a little more deeply about what we're reading, about who Jesus is and what He does for His people. 
what he makes available to you if you don't know him tonight and what he has done and will do for all of us who do know him this evening. As we read these verses, realize this is the servant of the Lord who is speaking prophetically. These words are the words that Jesus read up to the the first two and a half verses introducing this chapter. Jesus read them, Luke chapter 4, there in the synagogue at Nazareth. We we looked at this passage Sunday evening where Jesus reads these words and he says that the fulfillment of this scripture, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. That what this is speaking about, who this is speaking about is me, Jesus the Christ, the servant of the Lord. Chapter 61 and verse 1 of the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, M-O-U-R-N, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double everlasting joy. Joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. Who All who shall see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown into, uh, into it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. As I said, I want to walk back through this passage and just look verse by verse, even phrase by phrase, at the blessings that are ours in Christ. And then at the end, I want to lead to the one sort of culminating exhortation found there in verses 10 and 11. What it leads us to as we consider the goodness of God, the blessings of God poured out through this servant of the Lord. And so first notice verse 1, that the servant of the Lord speaks with authority. That he does not introduce himself in an arrogant fashion, 
he introduces himself as one who speaks with divine authority. He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That, that what I am declaring forth is brought and, and, and been authorized by the Spirit of the Lord who is upon me because the Lord, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, has anointed me. That the Trinity is involved in the redemption, uh, redemptive plan of God. It involves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've seen this, if you've been with us Sunday morning, which I'd imagine almost all of you have been, as we've walked through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that the entire Trinity is involved in the plan of salvation as the Father has sent the Son and proclaims even over the Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descends upon Jesus and the Spirit leads Jesus and He enables Jesus even to perform the miracles that He performs. Though He is the second person of the Trinity, there is a divine power within. He is reliant upon the Spirit to do all that He has been called to do. It's a Trinitarian work. The the Trinity is involved, this triune God, in this plan. The servant of the Lord declares forth, God's Spirit is upon me, and the Lord has anointed me. He comes with an authority, with a divine mark, with a divine mission. The Sermon on the Mount we're going to look to coming up, and I read the verses this past Sunday, even in Matthew chapter 7, where he he gets done teaching, and when Jesus is, is concluded that Sermon on the Mount, the people stand back in astonishment, and they say of, this, of Christ, of Jesus, that, that He's one who teaches with authority, unlike the scribes. The scribes could preach and say, maybe this is what this means, or debate over what that means, but Jesus unfolded a, a deep meaning of the law, even a deep meaning of of the law and its original context and how it should have originally been understood in spite of the way the Pharisees had twisted it. He spoke, and when he spoke, the authority that God had given him was manifested. This Messiah, the servant of the Lord, speaks with authority. Verse, the, the next phrase, actually, the next part of verse 1. Uh, next notice, point 2, that he brings good news for the poor. He, he preaches good tidings, it says, to the poor. Good tidings, that word means good news. Good news also in the, the Greek we get the word that we get gospel from that same Hebrew word here. Good news. He preaches the gospel to the poor. The good news, glad tidings, the message that he declares forth finds an audience among the poor and it's good for them. It's good news. It's glad tidings. The word poor there definitely implies impoverished financially, undoubtedly, materialistically. It also entails and can mean the meek or the humble, the low, the, the downcast, the lowly. All of that wrapped up into this word, poor. Uh, this Sunday we'll be looking to the, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The poor and the poor in spirit those that recognize the brokenness of this life and the frailty even of their own, of their own power. You know, rich, rich people have a lot of means to provide for themselves. Rich, the rich can make uh, decisions and do as they wish, do as they desire, and they have the financial backing to achieve a lot that they set out to do. Those who are poor uh, do not have such an option. Uh, they're bound by 
just seeking the bare necessities of life and even the unable to provide for themselves in that. And it creates a, an awareness of just how, how weak we are as human beings. Money can deceive us into thinking we're powerful. But the poor, the poor know their weakness. The poor, they know just how broken this life is, just how broken that they are. The poor in spirit are those that are not self-righteous, those who are not self-dependent. They're, they're humble. It's those who are the poor are downtrodden and the oppressed, the disadvantaged, the destitute, the, the ones of low social status. They had no inheritance. Those were the ones that Jesus brought good news to. The message was to rich and poor alike, but it was embraced by the poor. Read James. Read Peter even where he talks about even in the early church especially the, the gospel took root among the poor. Why? Because they didn't have the deceit of their riches blinding them to their need of Christ. And the, the gospel, the good news of salvation being offered to them just as equally as it is to the educated and to the rich, it spoke to their hearts. It called them in a way that others because of their education and because of their riches, they didn't, they didn't turn, they didn't believe. He brings a message to those who are most in need. He came not to heal the well, but the, the sick are the ones that know they need a physician. It's a message of such grace and goodness to us even in our poverty, our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy, and even those who may be financially impoverished to know the riches of Christ, the riches of, of heaven are ours in Him. He brought this message to the poor. Thirdly, notice, He heals the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted speaks to a different category than even poverty, than even the poor. There's a lot of rich people even that are brokenhearted because even our riches cannot guard us from the consequences of living in a fallen world. Uh, rich people still die. Uh, rich people still have family issues and marital issues and issues with children and uh, rich people endure all the same agonies of this life and accidents, even though their money can shield them to some degree. Um, all alike, all who are born of Adam endure the consequences of Adam's sin and our sin. We live in a broken, fallen world. And it don't, don't take very long living in this world. If you're, you're honest in your examination of it, even if you're, especially of your own life and personal sorrows, to get a broken heart. You, you look at the just brokenness of this life, and it will break your heart. You look at children that are suffering. You look at the wickedness that's committed. And then you, you examine your own sorrows and your own life and the things that have happened that, that bring grief, that bring devastation. Jesus says He's come, and there's good news to the poor, but He's, he's been sent to heal the brokenhearted. That in all the things we seek and long for to find a healing to the sorrows of our heart and the brokenness of our life, Jesus says, I am the answer. I am the one who is able to heal eternally, to give a true healing that is not a temporary band-aid fix, that is not any emotional sort of just manipulation to get you through to the next day, but a, a true, everlasting, enduring healing. This servant of the Lord has come to accomplish that, to bring that. Notice next, he's the one who can set the captives free. 
he says, I've come to proclaim liberty, to proclaim freedom to those that are, that are the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, he's not talking about going into Rayford Prison and letting out all the life sentence you know, prisoners. No, 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 no. He's speaking of the, the prison that we've been captive to ever since Adam and Eve ate of that tree of knowledge and good and evil. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin became our master. Uh, Satan even became our, our prison guard, so to speak. We, we have been in bondage to him and to sin and to death itself. Every man born of woman is, is born under sin, is born a captive to this. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We will die because we live in a fallen world as sinners. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty to those that are captive and open up the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is the one who overcame the serpent, who overcame Satan. Jesus is the one who has overcome our sin by paying a penalty for us on a cross, bearing our iniquity as the righteous, sinless Son of God. And guess what? Jesus is also the one who has overcome death itself. He's overcome sin, death, and the grave. And therefore, in Him now, because of Him, and what He's done and what He's accomplished, He can say, I can give liberty to the captive, and I can open the prison of those who are bound. You can't overcome your sins. You can't overcome Satan in your life in and of yourself. And you definitely aren't going to overcome the grave. But Jesus has. And in Christ, He is the resurrection and the life. And if you're in Him, you will not die. He gives life eternal to all who are His. He can set us free. He can break the bondage of sin in your life. He can, he can forgive your sins and iniquities. He can give to you, grant to you eternal life. This is the work of the suffering servant of the Lord. And then he says in verse 2, the next point, he proclaims the salvation of the Lord and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That, that phrase, acceptable year of the Lord, it's a title, it's a term that's synonymous with the, um, the, the term salvation of the Lord. It's used interchangeably. The day of salvation, rather. The day of salvation. Jesus read all the way up to this point in Luke chapter 4, is, is what Luke has recorded when he was there in the synagogue. He read to this point, and then he shut the scroll, and he said, today this is Scripture, it's fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus is saying, by his life, he is introducing the acceptable day of the Lord, the day of salvation for any and all who want to come to the Lord, to come to Him of His grace and mercy through what Jesus was going to do, through who He was in His first coming. That He has ushered in this day of salvation, a day even that's continuing on now to this very moment where, where you can come to God and have your sins forgiven. Where you can come to God and be freed from the bondage of your sin, be freed from the captive, even of death, where you can have your broken heart healed, where you can receive the good news, the gospel that's been given even to you. Jesus came and accomplished that. He is the servant of the Lord. Luke chapter 4, he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now why did he stop there? Why didn't he keep reading verse 2? In the day of vengeance of our God... Many have made the point, and I believe it to be true, Jesus stopped there because that, that those first two and a half verses speak to what Jesus accomplished in His first coming. So in His first coming, when He came as the, 
the suffering servant of the Lord and not the ruling and reigning greater son of David as he will come in the second coming, this first coming when he came, he accomplished these things. He has brought the gospel to the poor. He has accomplished the means of the brokenhearted being healed and the captive being set free. He has ushered in this day of salvation for even Gentiles to come and have their sins forgiven and be given eternal life. But he has not yet brought the day of the vengeance of our God. That day is yet to come. Read the end of Revelation when he comes to judge the world. We'll talk about it a little bit in just a moment. Many draw a break here, as do I, that Jesus stopped reading there because that was the extent of what he accomplished in his first coming. And all that we now read in, in the remainder of these verses up to verse 9 will all be accomplished in his second coming. Realize Jesus is returning. The Old Testament prophets, we talked about this very, very early on. I need to mention it just briefly so you understand what Isaiah is doing here. The Old Testament prophets, they wrote seeing the first coming and second coming of Jesus as one and the same event. And they struggled greatly to understand the suffering components of what the servant of the Lord would do, contrasted to the the uh, judgment and the ruling and the reigning passages. And so even when the Jews were looking to Jesus as the Messiah on Palm Sunday, when they, they welcomed him in, they were looking to the, the second coming of Jesus, even when he would rule and he would reign and he would reestablish Israel, the city of Zion, even as we're about to talk about. All that's yet to come. It's kind of like driving in the mountains down the highway when you're, you're traveling from Florida to the mountains. Remember this illustration, and you look and you see the mountain range, that first hill in Georgia that you come over when you can see the mountain ranges in the dif, uh, distance. And, and from a, the, the distance, it looks like one mountain range. It looks like you're going to get to it all at the very same time. And as you get closer and you get closer, what you actually find is that that left mountain range was way, way closer than that right mountain range, and the road actually navigated right in between them. Isaiah looking forward with the prophecy of God that's been given about the Messiah, all the Old Testament prophets, they saw the mountain range at a distance, and they saw first and second coming as one event. They did not understand until God's revelation got us there. We now see it clearly because we're in the valley there's a big valley between the first and the second coming. And so these first two and a half verses speak to what Jesus accomplishes in this first coming. He has ushered this day of salvation in. He's accomplished the, the freedom of sinners and the healing of the brokenhearted by bringing the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection to the poor, to those that are humble and acknowledge their need of a Savior. What is yet to come in the second coming? Notice these points are future tense as I give them to you. He will, notice verse 2b, He will judge the wicked. In the day of vengeance of our God. Vengeance of our God. We don't talk about a lot about the vengeance of God in the, the church anymore. Uh, there's a balance to, to be understood, but we love talking about the love and the grace and the mercy of God, but we seldom hear much about the vengeance of God. God will judge the wicked. And Jesus, we don't have time to look at it tonight, but Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. That's a true statement if we look and count the times he mentions the, the damnation of hell and contrast that to the times he mentions heaven. Um, hell is real. 
Jesus' return and a, a judgment upon those that do not know Him is real and will happen and will occur. That God will judge the wicked. He is a just and righteous and holy God. Jesus in that second coming will avenge. He, he will bring the vengeance of a holy God upon uh, unsaved sinners. We won't look at all the passages, but when we, if we ever do get to Revelation, you'll see a lot of that second coming has to do with the, the judgment of God being outpoured upon this fallen, broken, sinful earth and the sinners who inhabit it. Notice in that day, not only is He going to ven- uh, uh, bring vengeance upon the wicked, but He will comfort all those who mourn. This is turning back to His people. Specifically, I believe he has in mind here Israel, but by application, all of his people, us as well, to comfort all who mourn. The Beatitudes speak to this. I wonder how much Jesus had Isaiah 61 in mind as he even preached the Beatitudes. But there will come a day where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, is what Revelation 21 tells us. He will finally bring comfort to all who mourn. When we have that, in a way in the here and now, and yet it's not completely removed our sorrow. We still live uh, in a broken world. We still live under the consequences of sin in the here and now, but there will, will come a day that God will make all things new, and every sorrow will be turned to eternal joy. That there will not be sorrow in the new heaven and new earth. Think about that for a moment. We will be comforted. There will not be sorrow. Those... Feelings of regret and remorse and grief and anguish. The the tears. All of that will be gone. Will be done away with. To console those who mourn in Zion. And then he says to give them beauty for ashes. Comforts all those who mourn. He will give to them beauty for ashes. What a beautiful expression as it's rendered in the New King James even. Beauty for ashes. You know, you you can think of the ashes in this life of all that's scorched and all that is of grief and of sorrow is what it really pictures. If you you want the the Hebrew expressions, it's really picturing the the grief and uh, the sign even of grief and mourning of sorrow with ash being on your head. It was a public proclamation of one who was in a distraught condition who was grieving uh, because grieving greatly because of something that had happened and beauty there it literally refers to a, a crown of beauty to a uh, in a sense a, a, a tiara if it's a woman would be an expression there a head covering of beauty that God will will take away the ash and he will instead bestow the sign of of glory the sign of happiness the sign of of honor. God will take away the ash. All that has been scorched by sin and sorrow and grief. And He will instead place upon us a a crown of of beauty. The oil of joy, it says, sort of repeating itself in a different way for for mourning, for sorrow. That the oil of joy will come. A garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. No longer will our hearts be weighed down and burdened and heavy, but God will give us a garment of of praise. They shall be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. All of this, again, pointing to Israel, 
in that millennial kingdom, but also an application to the church, to even us, as we've been brought into these covenantal promises. He will comfort all those who mourn. He will renew joy and praise, even as Israel is currently in a Babylonian captivity as these words are being written to them, or at least uh, addressed to them. Um, They are in bondage. They have lost everything. And God says, no, a day is coming. And I'm going to renew the joy of your heart and the praise of your spirit. And you're going to be planted like a tree that I have planted in order that I may be glorified through you. Verses 4 and 5, we won't get bogged down in it, but he says he's going to renew uh, Zion. He's going to rebuild it. He's going to cause it to be rebuilt. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the son of a foreigner shall be your plowman and your vine dresser. He's saying, I'm going to rebuild the promised land. It lays in waste as the Babylonians came in and demolished it. But there is coming a day after the return of Jesus that he will rebuild Zion. He will Renew joy and praise. Verses 6 and 7. He will restore his people Israel. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. And they shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. Even now as they were slaves of the Gentiles. God says there's coming a day. By the work of the servant of the Lord. Which Jesus accomplished in this first coming. That the millennial kingdom. After his second coming. This thousand year period of Christ's earthly rule and reign. He will restore Israel. He will restore His people. They will be the priests of the Lord and and be the ones to whom the Gentiles come to know and to see the glory of the Lord as they were originally called to be and called to do and yet failed in that old covenant. He will rule in righteousness. Go down to verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery. He says, I will direct the work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. That God will be glorified through His people. He will do a work for them, i.e. the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what the restoration even of ethnic Israel in the future will be based upon. It's not apart from the work of the Messiah. It is accomplished through the work of Jesus foolishly heard some believers even in churches that so emphasize end time things and Israel being the people of God, ethnic Israel. I've I've heard people say before that if they're an ethnic Jew, then they're saved, right? They're automatically going to heaven. No. It's only through Christ. It's only in Christ. Paul speaks of it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. They are still the covenant people of God, but according to the gospel, they're enemies in this time frame until the fullness of the Gentiles has been accomplished. And I believe at the end times when Jesus returns, there will be a great turning of ethnic Israelites to the Christ, to Jesus. They will believe upon the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And God will renew them as his priest, and God will restore Zion, and God will restore uh, even a rule and a reign over his people, as, as Revelation speaks of it, as a rod of iron by which he will rule over the nations of the earth for that thousand-year time frame. Now, it sounds a little peculiar and funny as we talk about 
a thousand-year period and the return of Christ. But that is what the Bible teaches, and it's not. We'll see how it all unfolds when we get there. But understand what this is saying is the servant of the Lord will accomplish the redemption of his people, and he will renew and restore them. And for the application for you and me tonight is to think through what Jesus has accomplished, accomplished for us. Read Ephesians 1. That's your homework. There's your homework for the week. Read Ephesians chapter 1 of all the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ because of what He's accomplished for us. That He has brought the gospel to the poor. He has healed our broken heart. He is the one who can set us free. He is the one who has brought the salvation of the Lord. We know someday He will eternally comfort the grieving heart. We know that He will renew us in joy and praise and there is an eternal kingdom that, that will never end, an everlasting covenant that's even been spoken of here. As you think about and as you consider all the goodness of God towards you, like tonight, think about that. Think about what God has accomplished for you through Jesus Christ. As you think about Jesus, the servant of the Lord, and all the mercy and love and goodness and and grace of God that's been given to you, what is the response to, to that consideration? Verses 10 and verse 11, to summarize in one word, joy. Joy. We ought to be a joy-filled people. The church ought not to be filled with a bunch of grumpy old men and grumpy old women that are just mad at life and mad at everybody else. Unfortunately, there are some churches, not this one, thank the Lord, but there are some churches where that's the case. Where it's like you're going to a funeral every church service because people think you've got to be mad and, and serious to the point of, of just you know aggravation and, and almost just meanness, honestly, to be in the church house. And that's not... That's not the expressive response to people who understand what the servant of the Lord has accomplished for them. Those people don't get it. Like, if you get it and you understand tonight what Jesus has done for you, there ought to be a joy within your heart. I, I hear some of the songs, some of the old hymns, like the one we just sang about sunshine. And you know, sometimes you may think as I do, some of these just goodness, they're cheesy, aren't they corny? But they capture the joy that ought to be in our heart, no matter what we're going through, if we really know Jesus as Lord and Savior, do they not? The ones that wrote these songs understood the beauty of the truth we're about to look to in verses 10 and 11, that, that when we really consider Jesus and what He's done for us, there ought to be sunshine, sunshine, rays of sunshine in our hearts. We shouldn't be grumpy, mean people. We should be filled with the, the love of God resounding in us, producing the joy, the joy of the Lord. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoicing means the expression of joy. Rejoice. Joy. You hear the word joy in it? We're, we're, that, that, that's the, the outward, the outpouring of inward joy to, uh, it's manifesting that here in the Lord, my, my soul shall be joyful in my God. This doesn't just say, there's no contingencies here of saying, you know, joyful in God 
when everything's going as I think it ought to go. Easy to be joyful in the Lord when everything's going like you think it ought to go. There's no contingencies here. It's at all times, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, no matter what sorrow is even in your heart, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's a tension in that, undoubtedly. But you've got to understand the joy that this is speaking of isn't a corny, cheesy, superficial joy. Um, This is a a deep-seated, deep way down in your heart, pleasure and contentment in the Lord. Because you know what He's accomplished for you. And no matter what goes on in this life, you know He's sovereign over it and He's preparing for us an eternal way to glory through it. That, That no matter what we face, there's something deep down inside us that's called joy. That even as tears roll down our face, the joy is still there. There's still the joy of our salvation that is our strength. I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For He has clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. All the way back in the Old Testament even, we find the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. What does that mean? That means that we're not coming to God in our innate, inherent righteousness. Like it's not in us and of us that makes us right before God. It's not that we get it all put together and we get it all cleaned up and we get it all figured out and we live so righteously before God that we come in who we are before Him and, and as if He owes us because of that, as if we in, in our sin can actually... <laughs> create a righteousness that pleases a holy and infinitely holy God. All the way back in the Old Testament, it was still the same. It was an imputed righteousness. It was a righteousness that isn't in us or of us. It's foreign from us that is given to us. Just as this jacket is is not a part of me, but I'm clothed in it. We, We are clothed in the righteousness of God. The garments of salvation covered with the robe of righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. The righteousness of the servant, suffering servant of the, the Lord that Jesus can give to us His righteousness and the beauty of this great exchange. He, he takes our sinfulness and pays the penalty for it at Calvary and He clothes us in His righteousness so that we become the sons of God, the sons and the daughters of God. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and the bride adorns herself with jewels. Went to a wedding this past Saturday. They were all Taylor Hubbard, Taylor and Megan Hubbard. How about that? Um, Now it's Taylor and Megan Hubbard all dressed up. As a bride adorns herself and as a bridegroom decks himself, so has the righteousness of God covered us. It adorns us before a holy God so that when He looks at us, He does not see the nakedness of our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. All the nations as you and me. God has provided a way by which sinful man can be reconciled to holy God. And he did it through this suffering servant who can heal our broken heart, who can break the chains of sin, who has overcome death itself, who's brought about the salvation, and who one day will bring it all to an earthly fruition, 
new heaven, a new earth. And we consider all of that. If you're here and you've got that and you know Him as Lord and Savior, joy, joy ought to fill your heart. It ought to fill your life. It ought to be your strength even as you live the rest of this week and come Sunday morning to rejoice and to praise the Lord that has saved you. As we close, I'll just ask one question. What would it take to make you happy tonight? If I could exchange your bank account with Bill Gates, some of you think that would make me happy. Buying into the deceitfulness of riches. Some of you think if this relationship were just a little bit better with this person or that person, then I'd finally be happy. I had that job and this job. All of those things are are empty cisterns. They're idols that promise water and yet they're broken. They don't have anything in them. They just lead to a greater thirst. Jesus is the one who can truly give eternal happiness. He's the one who gives an enduring and a lasting joy. I hope you know Him. And if not, I hope tonight you find Him. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we do pray as we've lifted high the name of Christ that He would draw all people unto Himself. Lord, by Your grace and mercy, You have brought His Gospel to the Gentiles, to all the nations. You're desiring for all people everywhere to become Your people. Lord, that includes us tonight. So many in here have come to Christ. We know the joy of our salvation. We know the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, renew that joy, I pray. Help us leave here happy people, happy people in Christ, no matter what we're going through. Lord, if there be one here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray tonight they turn and find that you're a God who will save even them. You will save any and all who turn to Christ. Tonight, may they turn, repent, and believe upon him as Lord and Savior. I ask it in Jesus' name for his honor, for his glory.